Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 23rd of October 2014, and it's my great pleasure, after I have to say an embarrassingly long gap, a gap entirely of my own negligence, to welcome to the programme once again the one and only James Corbett of thecorbettreport.com. And uh, it's at this point, of course, that I usually launch into a paragraph of details about the guest on the show, but I think maybe I'll dispense with that formality this time, as I'm quite sure that 99% of the listening audience will probably be perfectly well informed as to who you are, James, and what you do, so uh, I shall swiftly ignore that convention and uh, say, James, thank you very much indeed for coming on the show again. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Julian. It really is a pleasure talking to you, and I want to thank you also for having been in touch with me at such an early stage of your podcast. So I've been listening to your podcast since almost the beginning, and I really do find it to be a valuable resource. You have a lot of excellent interviews on, and uh, for anyone in the, my listening audience, because I'll be posting this on my website as well, of course, anyone in my listening audience who hasn't heard your uh, your career summation interview with Dr. Stan Monteith, I would highly recommend it. Quite an amazing interview uh, to have conducted just a month or two before uh, Dr. Stan passed away. So uh, my hat's off to you for all the excellent work you've been doing. Well, that's very good of you to say so. And uh, thank you for sticking with <laughs> my podcast over these months. And uh, yeah, it was great to be able to speak to Dr. Stan. Uh, I felt led to do that. And I'm so glad that he agreed to speak just weeks really before he died. Um, well, it's good to be speaking to you again. And uh, as I said before, it's a long time since you were on the program before. That was early 2013, I think. Um, and of course, a lot's happened since then. Uh, not least, of course, your first year and a half of being a dad. So I've got to ask you, how's that going? It is excellent, wonderful, <laughs> thrilling. It's everything that uh, you've ever heard about it. And it is also exhausting and <laughs> at times frustrating and all of the other things that you've heard about parenthood. But uh, oh. but I, I uh, it was about last, maybe a week ago, my, my son came down with a cold. And of course, my wife just came down with it. And now I'm starting to come down with it. So <laughs> all of those joys are starting to come to the household as well. But uh, it is absolutely just the most wonderful experience of my life. And I am so, so happy and so blessed to have such a wonderful little boy. And I've got to ask how you actually managed to fit all your work around all your family duties. <laughs> I know you knew that was coming, but I've got to ask you. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question because I don't know myself. I was up till five in the morning uh, this morning because I was on breaking the set with Abby Martin on RT at 4.30 in the morning, my time. And so I stayed up all night to do that. And then uh, I got a couple of hours sleep and woke up with my son at maybe seven in the morning. And uh, then I got an hour or two nap in the afternoon. And now here I am. It's 9.30 at night as we're recording this. So I, don't, I really don't know how I do this. And I'll probably <laughs> put, pay a price at some point. You are absolutely incredible. It explains why you've just got a cup of coffee. No, I got a cup of coffee as well, but I have no good reason for it in comparison with you. <laughs> Well, um, okay, let's turn to uh, more serious matters, of course. Now, my reason for inviting you onto the program is to discuss this subject of ISIS or IS or ISIL. I, I don't know what to call it these days. I'm, <laughs> it seems to be referred to in many, many different ways. I'm going to call it ISIS for most of our conversation here. And uh, as I said to you in an email, now that our beloved leader here in the UK, David Cameron, has effectively branded me and I guess a large proportion of the world's population now as extremists, whatever that means, for questioning things like 9-11 and 7-7, I thought that it would be no harm to start asking questions about ISIS too. So uh, here we go. I mean, we have this latest target of the war on terror, 
And, you know, considering how many times we have been lied to with respect to that war on terror in the past, I think that's reason enough in itself to submit ISIS to considerable scrutiny. At least that's the way I think about it. And uh, since you've been conducting a listener input study on this subject for is it a couple of months now or so, I thought you'd be the right person to ask about this. Is it is that going well, that study? It certainly is. Uh, I would say that uh, it has stalled somewhat in in the last few weeks as the, the, the article in which that investigation was going on has kind of gone down the uh, the list in terms of priorities on the website. But I think it really does stand to uh, to be updated as this conflict continues. And I guess that's one of the things that I'm working out as I do these open source investigations, because obviously I did one, for example, on Ebola, which is still quite a pressing issue and uh, still deserves more scrutiny, perhaps in in the future. So I think we'll have to return to some of these topics. And I'm glad for conversations like this one where we can uh, dredge up some of these issues and hopefully get the uh, the conversation reignited there at CorbettReport.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me jump straight in then. And um, I think the, the obvious question to ask you is something like, what is ISIS? Who is ISIS? But I feel if I do that, that kind of preempts the outcome of the interview in a way, if you see what I mean. So let me start instead by asking you, if you would, to share with us what you know about the beginnings and the development of this group, or perhaps I'd better say what, what you know about what's claimed about the beginnings and the development of this group. Could you give us some idea about the rise of ISIS and uh, perhaps the, the various incarnations that it seems to have gone through over the years? Yes, well, I think that's that's a good way of phrasing it. The uh, the what is claimed about the early stages of this group, uh, the earliest stages of the of what is ultimately morphed into uh, ISIS or Islamic State is murky at best. And there's not a lot of information on the very earliest stages of this. We know, or we are told at any rate, that it was started in 1999 by a Sunni militant from Jordan named. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and this was apparently started in 1999, which uh, was a time in which uh, apparently Zarqawi had gone to uh, Afghanistan to participate in some of the training camps there and had met bin Laden, but decided not to pledge fealty to al-Qaeda at that point, for whatever reason. And uh, apparently this group was originally founded with the intention specifically of overthrowing the kingdom of Jordan and replacing it with a a religious government, obviously an Islamic government. And the group was transplanted to Iraq in the wake of the U.S. invasion in 2003. But again, the earliest part of this is is fairly murky. And there uh, I haven't found a lot of details about the first few years of the group before it really was transplanted to Iraq. But by the time it got to Iraq, it started to gain notoriety for some spectacular attacks that were notable, perhaps, for the fact that they were not necessarily targeting the types of groups that people were expecting. I mean, at that time in 2003, uh, early 2004, obviously, a lot of the insurgency was attacking the uh, the American uh, soldiers, quite specifically. But uh, there was there were attacks that were aimed at, uh, for example, the Imam Ali Shrine in Najaf. And uh, I have here a quote from a writer for The Atlantic, Bobby Ghosh, who was actually at the shrine at the time of the bombing. And uh, people there were apparently saying, why us? Why, when there are so many Americans around, are they bombing us? And these were the types of attacks committed against uh, the Iraq's Shiite majority population that really did start the chaos that Iraq 
began to descend into, not obviously the, the chaos that was caused by the, the bombing and invasion and the, uh, the, the destruction of the infrastructure in the, in, in the U.S.-led invasion, but the chaos internally between the Sunni and Shiite population and, of course, the Kurdish population in the north, which is kind of split off into its own autonomous region. The real breakdown of Iraq that we've seen was really started by, with attacks like these that seem to have been perpetrated or, or instigated by Zarqawi's group. And that was the role that uh, this group started to play in Iraq in those early years of the invasion. And then it uh, was in, I believe, 2000, I want to say 2004, that uh, Zarqawi pledged allegiance to bin Laden and became the official al-Qaeda franchise in Iraq. Um, Is that when it changed its name and became Al-Qaeda in Iraq? Yes, uh, or that it became known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq in mm. um, Arabic, Tanzim Qaedat Al-Jihad Fi Bilad Al-Rafayin. <laughs> I don't know. Very good, very um, good. <laughs> well, it's kind of humorous, but in a way, I think it's actually important to understand that there has been a bewildering array of, of names that this group has been known as in various times and stages, sometimes multiple different names at, during the same period of time. And uh, I, I will not attempt to butcher any more Arabic, but some of the English translations of some of the names that this group has been known as Al-Qaeda Group of Jihad in Iraq, Al-Qaeda Group of Jihad in the Land of the Two Rivers, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, Al-Qaeda in the Land of the Two Rivers, Al-Qaeda of Jihad in Iraq, Al-Qaeda of Jihad Organization in the Land of the Two Rivers, Al-Qaeda of the Jihad in the Land of the Two Rivers, Al-Tawid. Uh, uh, organization of monotheism jihad the monotheism and jihad or group the organization base of jihad country of the two rivers the organization base of jihad in Mesopotamia <laughs> the organization of al jihad's base in Iraq the organization <laughs> say no more <laughs> I mean it goes on and on and on I have a list uh, that's yeah. uh, that's um, several uh, sentences or several lines long here of various permutations of the name of this group as it's been known um, at various times and it is kind of ridiculous but I think it is actually in some way, I think it's part of the story here. Uh, of course, it ends up as the Islamic State, but it has gone through so many different permutations that it does create a sort of a difficulty for researchers to try to connect all of these dots. Because, again, it could be referred to as, as any number of different things at any number of different times in the, in the organization's history. So that I think a lot of people who are sort of coming to this as ISIS or ISIL, as it has become known, obviously, in the last couple of years will probably not even understand that this used to be, this is related to the group at any rate, that uh, that used to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or the group that was founded in 1999, the Organization of Monotheism and Jihad, JTJ. And that obscures some of the history, it complicates the history. I think that this is, in some way, this is intentional. And uh, I'm obviously reading a lot into this in terms of the overall construct of who is behind this group and what has been created for. But I, I really do think that the, uh, the the confusion behind this this naming, not only of the group itself, but then of also the the uh, the leaders and the other members of the group that, of course, like um, many jihadis, adopt these made-up names that they then become known by and have numerous different monikers that, again, become bewildering in terms of the, the different array of names that some of these people are called by that, again, makes it difficult to understand for researchers who are not being extremely careful 
you know, which, okay, so which al-Baghdadi is being referred to here? And is this, is this one, that one that did that other thing? And is this the one that was supposedly killed three years ago? And all of these, these complications that arise. And I mean, it's interesting if you were looking at this as an intelligence operation, which obviously I do, but if you were looking at it from that perspective, this is a kind of, not necessarily a strategy, but it certainly is helpful. Again, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of tangential, but I think it's interesting to see the, uh, again, the bewildering amount of names that crop up in this investigation. Yeah, and it's, we're not, not even clear, really, whether we're dealing with Al-Qaeda here or we're not dealing with Al-Qaeda here, because a lot is made of the break-off in 2006, where they ceased to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then became Islamic State of Iraq. But is that really the case? Because uh, I have a quote here from uh, 2007 uh, Reuters article saying that the US military had been speaking and interrogating a Al-Qaeda senior figure. And that senior figure had said that Islamic State of Iraq was really just a front for Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So the whole thing is really very difficult to understand at all. Yes, absolutely. I think you're you're exactly right about that. Again, the uh, the nature of the break with Al Qaeda and and what Al Qaeda even really means at the end of the day, it is really just a brand name. And uh, again, I mean, I, I refer, refer to Al Qaeda in Iraq as a franchise, kind of mockingly using the sort of corporate terminology. But but what else would you refer to it as? I mean, this organization is only an organization in name. It has the imprimatur of Bin Laden or Zawahiri or whoever, and it becomes an Al Qaeda franchise. In the same way, you know, al-Nusra acts as that in the current Syrian context. So, again, I mean, what does what does any of this really mean other than it's sort of the brand name for terrorism? And uh, it's interesting to see there's sort of a brand name change that's going on, as you indicated in in the preamble, Mm. from the al-Qaeda terrorist uh, threat that we were supposed to be so afraid of for the past decade into the ISIS, ISIL, Islamic State threat that we're supposed to be afraid of now. And this brand name IS back in June declared itself now a caliphate with uh, a presence in large parts of eastern Syria and western Iraq. But uh, when I went to the Wikipedia article, which I'm afraid to do occasionally <laughs> on ISIS, uh, that, that was claimed in 2006 to pretty much stretch right across Syria and well into central Iraq around 2006. And yet we've had Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott saying that ISIS has effectively declared war on the world by declaring itself a caliphate. And there was also that ridiculous map that got uh, picked up by various news outlets purporting to show the intended caliphate as stretching from the borders of Russia and China right across the Middle East to North Africa and even to Spain. Um, So what do you make of all this? I mean, how much of this is what do you think ISIS is actually claiming? And how much of it do you think is what is just being said about them for propaganda purposes? Well, I mean, I think that those two things intertwine because obviously for the followers or supporters of this group who genuinely do believe in jihad and in their sort of religious purpose, and let's not be mistaken, there are actual people in this region who really do are uh, led by religious conviction and really do want to participate in jihad. So mm-hmm. those people really exist. We're not saying this is all fictional or made up. No, no, and sure. those people really do believe, obviously, that a- any government whatsoever that is not uh, following the edicts of the, the Quran is apostate and must be turned into an Islamic government. So, I mean, you could say theoretically and sort of you know, aspirationally, then yes, I mean, any government uh, you know, on the planet would be fair game for this and any place on the planet. But obviously, I mean, realistically, mm-hmm. that can't really be the scope of operations of a group like this. So uh, they're concentrating on the uh, 
uh, Iraq and the Levant, as the name would imply. So uh, Iraq and Syria. So the, the the maps and other things that have been spread, I mean, I suppose there's a kernel of truth to them insofar as there are members of this group who undoubtedly would like to try to take over vast swaths of the planet. But again, I mean, it's uh, the equivalent when that sort of thing is picked up and reported on seriously by by mainstream news outlets. I mean, it's the equivalent of those outlets reporting on barroom chatter as if, you know, it, it really means anything. So again, I mean, whether this is a sort of PR in the sense of this group trying to make itself sound more important than it is, or it's PR from the other perspective, if this is an intelligence operation trying to make the world afraid of a group that they don't need to be afraid of. I think those two different aims actually dovetail. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, is where you mentioned the possibility of creating Corbettistan. And if you were to throw that <laughs> meme out into cyberspace, might that be picked up on in the same way? <laughs> we'll see. I'm working yeah. on it. <laughs> Um, okay, so you said that ISIS was formed in 1999, and uh, it was apparently started by this guy from Jordan, uh, Abu Musab al-Zakawi. Now, in your recent podcast on ISIS, you start with him, and then you go through a list of characters who've led this organization under its various names. And what really stands out in that presentation, for me anyway, is the way that you draw attention to the fact that we really don't have a coherent picture coming out from any sources, really, as to who these people are and what's supposed to have happened to them. Um, I mean, as some of them, you say, appear to have died on more than one occasion. So um, could you tell us something about these characters? Um, Could you start perhaps with Abu Musab al-Zakawi and tell us something about this strange story that he's had? All right. Well, as as I say, again, this is a a Sunni militant from Jordan who ends up in Iraq, at at any rate, in 2003 to, to lead this group. And as you indicate there, it's extremely difficult to keep a coherent picture of this person's exploits if you are following the way they are being reported on in the Western media, because these reports are often contradictory. And as you mentioned there, for example, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi specifically was reported dead on multiple occasions. He was killed in a bombing raid in April of 2003. He was also killed in fighting in June of 2005, and he was killed again, presumably for good, in 2006. And uh, that's when the the group changed hands, uh, changed leadership. But along the way, he was arrested in Fallujah in 2004, arrested in Bakuba in January of 2005, evacuated from the country in May of 2005. Oh, I, I think I might have missed a, a killing somewhere in there. But at, <laughs> at any rate, yes, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's insane. And of course, obviously, the way this would be explained by supporters of the mainstream narrative is to say, well, it's the fog of war. You know, he was reported as being killed, but they were wrong. Um, but these types of reportings and then retractions, if they occur, they're very it's very difficult to follow that story. And again, I think that this confusion whether it's intentional or not, certainly does play into the hands of people who want to create a sort of mystique around this character and uh, his exploits so that it's difficult to keep a coherent view of it. And for the average person who is just following the headlines at most of these types of events uh, in the day-to-day news and probably not keeping track of who is who, if they hear that the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq has been killed – uh, you know, in April of 2003, they'll think, oh, you know, great, the, the American forces are doing their job and they're taking care of the, the opposition or whatever. And then a year or two later, they'll they'll hear about the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq being killed and they won't probably will not uh, recall that it was uh, that that happened last year or and almost certainly won't recall that it was the same Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, whose name they probably don't remember. So it, for the average person following this, it really is just a I mean, it's uh, ridiculous and it's almost a 
Emmanuel Goldstein level type of deception that goes on. It, the person doesn't even really have to exist uh, as anything other than a convenient character to be brought into the headlines whenever mm. the American forces or whoever it may be need a uh, sort of propaganda victory. And there seems to be some warrant for thinking that with something that you referenced, uh, an intriguing article in the Washington Post from 2006 called Military Plays Up Role of Zarqawi, in which the writer says that the at the, at the time the US military was conducting a propaganda campaign to exaggerate the role of Zarqawi in Iraq, and that that propaganda was in part directed at the US population. The article itself does actually admit that. That's right. Uh, the documents that the Washington Post obtained included uh, internal Pentagon briefings and uh, and other documents that talked about this PSYOP campaign and listed it explicitly as U.S. home audience, i.e. that the, the uh, U.S. domestic audience was one of the targets of this propaganda campaign, which, of course, is in contravention to uh, the laws of the land in the United States. But uh, I suppose when you're conducting these types of secret operations, you don't really care about that. And uh, that seems to have played out in this case. In fact, one of the documents quoted Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, who was the U.S. military's chief spokesperson at the time of this propaganda campaign, as saying that it was, uh, I believe he said it was the most successful um, PSYOP campaign, something of that nature. Um, so, I mean, it, it was, again, it was explicitly a psychological operation to make uh, Zarqawi seem, and, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq generally, seem more important in the country than they were. And I think that there is, again, there there could be a sort of mainstream explanation for this, which is to say that the building up of, of Zarqawi and, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq was uh, an attempt to get the public more um, on board with the idea that this threat that presumably was the, the basis for the, the Afghanistan campaign was an ongoing concern in Iraq itself and was trying to explicitly bring that connection to the forefront of people, at the very least in a subconscious way or in a way that, uh, that again, people just reading the headlines will see al-Qaeda in Iraq and will start to associate the two, even though, of course, al-Qaeda was absolutely 100% um, antithetical to everything that the Saddam Hussein government mm. uh, stood for. Saddam Hussein, obviously no friend of al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda having no connections to Iraq before the invasion. It was only after the invasion. But mm. again, that sort of nuance can get lost in just the headline reporting that goes on. So it was, an, I think, a quite effective campaign because, again, al-Qaeda in Iraq became an almost sort of mantra in the news at that time. And even myself, I remember being well aware of that group at that time, um, just not my, at, at that time myself not being particularly savvy in, as to these types of operations so i i just took it at face value that oh al-qaeda has set up a new branch in, in iraq and they're they're very uh they're very active in the country but uh, according to to all of the other reports that they were receiving at the time i mean al-qaeda in iraq was a fairly minor player in what was going on in Iraq. And it was only certain key, you know, spectacular events like the the bombing of, uh, of that shrine that, that I mentioned earlier that really brought any sort of attention to the group at all. Well, could we move on to this uh, second individual whose uh, name apparently is Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, who apparently succeeded Zarqawi when he apparently died, uh, apparently, in two, sorry, in 2006. I don't know what else to say, really. Um, could you tell us something about uh, his story? Well, again, I mean, it's one of these shadowy characters who has multiple 
personalities, multiple characters, multiple names. And uh, so, uh, again, I, I don't think a lot is known about his background, but he did take over the group in 2006 uh, when Zarqawi was apparently killed for the last time. And uh, <laughs> exactly like Baghdadi, he was reported captured in March of 2007. In May of 2007, he was reported to have been killed. And he was uh, uh, captured again and killed once again in April of 2010. So again, multiple multiple captures, multiple killings, and just a lot of confusion. But and perhaps... You, you, so, so sorry, you, you said, I think it was when he was captured, this was uh, 2009, that he was somehow or other releasing tapes during that time. That's another confusion. That's right, yes. In April of 2009, he was reported as having been arrested in Baghdad. But at the time, uh, that claim was denied by ISI, the, the Islamic State of Iraq. And during that time in which supposedly, according to what was being reported, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was still somehow managing to release tapes, recordings. And those recordings were being authenticated by the Sight Institute, which I note in my reporting is an interesting group. But anyway, they, they verified the authenticity of this according to their, uh, their analysis. And that, of course, brings up the question of how he could have been releasing these tapes from within prison. So, uh, again, I mean, the, the implication was that he was not in, in prison at that time, which was really confirmed by the fact that he was killed not in prison, in April 2010 when he was hiding in a home during a rocket attack. And now this brings me to ask you about this SIT intelligence group, which was previously known as the Site Institute. I mean, having looked at their site and their blog, there are a lot of things that concern me on that, particularly their use of the word extremist, which they seem to use quite freely. Uh, and I looked at their blog piece on a guy called Gerard Miller, or Gerard Miller, who, with his wife, carried out the Las Vegas shootings. And the article that I looked at was tracing Gerard Miller's descent into extremism. And uh, I noticed on that article, they uh, say that he had looked at Alex Jones's website. Mm -hmm. And the quote there is more extreme pages included that of radio talk show host Alex Jones, a widely known conspiracy theorist and voice of anti-government causes. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering about this organization. Um, whenever I see that word extremist kind of spread around in that kind yes. of way, um, so that the semantic range of that word seems to include all sorts of things. I'm just wondering really what's going on with a group like that. Well, I mean, this is an extremely important question because, again, so much of our, our analysis of what's going on there, it depends on groups like this. And uh, Site Intel Group is obviously the current manifestation of this. Before that, there was a group called Intel Center, which was equally interesting another one of these groups that from washington was monitoring the uh the what was that the sort of jihadi chatter online and things and trying to discover new tapes and and, uh, and things of that sort and intel center was implicated in a number of not just suspicious but outright fabricated so-called releases of al-qaeda material where they would claim to have found online in some you know obscure jihadi forum this new video this new al-qaeda propaganda video and they'd release it and it was a paid subscription service news services and, and news wires and that sort of group would pay uh, expensive subscription to this service in order to get access to these new tapes as they're released uh, the interesting part of it, as I don't have the details in front of me, but there was one Al-Qaeda video that was supposedly released by the Intel Center, supposedly of brand new footage that was uh, being shown for the first time. 
that researchers found contained footage that was actually contained in a, I want to say a BBC, I know it was a British production of some sort, I think it was a BBC production, but it was a docudrama that had aired a year earlier than this release of this tape <laughs> that actually contained some of that footage from that was supposedly being released for the first time by the Intel Center. So all of these kinds of crazy shenanigans went on with the Intel Center. And my understanding is that that group was discredited because it was really, it became well known that this group was actually forging and faking and, and putting together old footage and, and releasing it as new Al-Qaeda releases in order to basically continue getting subscribers to pay through their nose for this service. So at the very base level, I mean, there's a sort of monetary incentive for groups like this one to basically hype up a threat that isn't there. But of course, there's also more nefarious purposes. And that that comes in with a group like uh, site Intel Group. Yeah, I mean, what you've just said there connects with one of the things that I said to you before the interview, and that was my concern about something I saw on this site blog, and that was this video of this guy called Abu Khaled Al Australia, most implausible name, um, and there he was in front of a whole group of ISIS fighters speaking to the camera and delivering a warning to the whole world. I mean, he was just saying, you know, these weapons we have, these soldiers, we will not stop fighting, we will not put down our weapons until we reach your lands, until we take the head off every tyrant, and until the black flag is flying high in every single land, until we put the black flag on top of Buckingham Palace, until we put the black flag on top of the White House, we will not stop, we will keep on fighting. And, you know, I mean, obviously I can't say it's not genuine, but there was something about it, the extreme quality of it, the the guy was speaking in a uh, an accent which struck me as more British than it was Australian. And it, it all looked staged to me. It had that quality to it. Now, of course, I can't prove that, but you see what I mean. Everything that you've just said to me about particularly this other group just sort of feeds into my suspicions, really. Well, exactly. I mean, there's not only the monetary incentive for groups like the Intel Center before or Site Intel Group now to fake these types of things in order to maintain their sort of subscriber base, but obviously there are intelligence connections and manipulations that could go on through groups like these in order to seed legends for agents that they want to place in the field for later use. And what recourse do we have as the general public looking at this propaganda to verify it in any way? Um, it's just it's just trust. Exactly. It's just yeah. videos that were being are, are often just reported on. We don't even get to see them often. And uh, and so we're just uh, sort of helpless people in this in this propaganda matrix if we simply accept what is being told to us, which means that we have to be in a position to at least be skeptical of what's being told to us. And unless and until mm -hmm. some sort of proof is provided of some of these characters and, and uh, things that are being paraded in front of us, how on earth can we, I mean, what are we supposed to, what is our, what is, what is the alternative simply to trust everything that is being said? Yes. And uh, if so, what does that make us? Well, this is it. And how can we trust what is being said? We've just been talking about this Abu Omar al-Baghdadi when I have here in front of me this quote again from that 2007 article saying that the US military back in that 2007 had said that this Omar al-Baghdadi doesn't even exist. I mean, this is the quote here, Brigadier General Kevin Bergner told a news conference that Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, leader of the self-styled Islamic State of Iraq, which was purportedly set up last year, did not exist. 
Well, yes, and even more confusing because, of course, eventually it became the official position of the U.S. government that he did exist and they did kill him. Um, But there was confusion over that supposedly because these recordings were being released of this person claiming to be someone calling himself al-Baghdadi, clearly, again, a nom de guerre, a fake jihadi name that is adopted like an al-Australia or al-Converti, apparently, in in Canada. These types of ridiculous names that are adopted, obviously, to show various allegiances and what have you. And so al-Baghdadi, the the Baghdadi. And so the the suggestion was that this was a primarily foreign funded and foreign based group uh, that was attempting to make itself look more authentically Iraqi. So that's why there was two al-Baghdadis leading it, the Baghdadis, as in people from claiming, you know, uh, some sort of affiliation with Baghdad and with Iraq that trying to make themselves seem like a local indigenous group when in fact they're really foreign transplants. So that feeds into the entire sort of propaganda narrative of this group uh, in that middle part of the, the last decade. And that's presumably the basis behind even the U.S. government questioning the existence of Baghdadi at that time in 2007. But as I say, again, by the time he was killed in 2010, presumably he was a real person or they, they believed him to be. And uh, again, all it is is just faces and names being paraded in front of our eyes and uh, very little that we can do to to verify any of what's being told to us about this other than sort of listen to the tapes and uh, parse what's going on. But we have no access to any of this material in a way that would make it verifiable for anyone but dedicated groups that were on the ground trying to source this information. And unfortunately, when it comes to those groups, they all tend to be people with Mm. axes to grind, quite obviously. For example, uh, with the site Intel Group, uh, founded by Rita Katz, working in Washington, D.C., from an Iraqi Jewish family born in southern Iraq in 1963, She uh, spent some time in Israel where she served in the Israeli Defense Forces, a committed Zionist who said that I believe that that Jews belong in Israel and and things of this nature, which clearly means there is a political nature to the work that she's doing, which I think is impossible to separate from the work that she's doing. And uh, I, I think we have to be aware of these types of at the very least, these types of biases and uh, from a more conspiratorial angle, I mean, the types of things that can be simply created, as you say, by groups like these that are just putting things on their website that we have absolutely no way to verify. And I guess the last guy in this list of names and faces that we have no way of verifying is this caliph of the Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And I'm going to have a go at doing the name, which you did so well in your podcast, which is Ibrahim Awad Ibrahim Ali Muhammad al-Badri al-Samurai. Have I got that right? I hope so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you said that we pretty much know zero about that person. Is that right? Well, to clarify, there is a biography that has appeared online that, as I understand, sourced from a some sort of jihadi forum, some sort of online Islamic extremist forum, which has been translated, I believe, by the site Intel Group. I'm not sure if they were the, the translators of that document, but I believe they're hosting it. At any rate, that biography is online and claims various things about the background of uh, Caliph Ibrahim, as he's styling himself these days. 
But again, uh, there's absolutely zero in terms of any documentation on this. There's some scattered reports. I mean, BBC, for example, cites unnamed, unverified, uncheckable reports. That's all they referred them to. Sources say. Yeah, sources say that uh, he was uh, at a um, university at the time of the Iraqi invasion and and things of that nature. But almost, I mean, zero, absolutely none of it is, is in any way verifiable. I mean, again, we are being asked to simply take this at face value. So I tend to think that really nothing is known of this person until the point at which he was apparently apprehended in Iraq and held at a U.S. camp in Iraq. But again, there are conflicting reports of that. So he was held as a civilian detainee by U.S. forces at Camp Buka. This was during the American invasion. So the official story that the American government is floating at this time is that he uh, was detained from February until December of 2004. But the former commander of that camp, Army Colonel Kenneth King, absolutely insists that this person, whatever his name may be, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, we'll call him, (laughs) was there at the camp until 2009 when the camp was turned over to the Iraqi forces. And he insists this in the face of being told that, no, the U.S. government claims he was released in December 2004. He continued to insist, no, I I specifically remember him. And this relates to a story that he tells of al-Baghdadi apparently saying at some point during this tenure, presumably after 2004, saying something uh, along the lines of, I'll see you in New York or something along those lines. Uh, It's meant to be obviously an ominous, uh, um, ominous statement about the future intentions of, of this leader of the Islamic State. So, again, there's conflicting reports and we don't really have any information about if if he did stay on, then what happened when he was transferred to the Iraqi justice system after Camp Buka was handed over, obviously released at some point and becoming the leader of ISI in May of 2010. So sometime between 2009, 2010, he must have been released um, if he hadn't been released before. But almost nothing is known. And in fact, there is only I have read that there are only two photographs of him in existence. That's right. I've only yeah. seen one of yeah. them, which is linked on his Wikipedia article, if you'd like to I check. I think I have seen a second one, so there we go. Well, the, the second <laughs> one that I've seen was from a video that was released uh, shortly after it was claimed that he was dead earlier this year. There was a video released of him delivering a sermon in Mosul that was meant to sort of quash the rumor that he was dead. And he looks vastly different with a long flowing beard and uh, and uh, obviously looks quite different than he was as a detainee. But interestingly, if you look at his uh, mugshot from his detainee uh, time at Camp Buka, it looks, I think, well, very, very similar, we'll say, to the picture that has uh, floated around on the Internet now for uh, over a year, I believe, of John McCain meeting with uh, Syrian militants when he did his little surprise trip to Syria, uh, either last year or the year before. I'm not sure which year it was. But uh, but if you look at those photos, you can see someone who looks very much like the mugshot of al-Baghdadi at Camp Buka, which, of course, has been officially denied by the uh, the McCain team. But at any rate, it is an interesting possibility that he was, in fact, actually there in the vicinity of the leader of the Islamic State of Iraq before it became the ominous organization that we're supposed to fear. The plot thickens, indeed. Um, 
of course, another dimension to the whole tale is where ISIS seems to be getting equipment and money from. And uh, when I turned to the BBC, which, of course, I do in the spirit of Orwell's words, I heard it on the BBC, so I know it must be true. Um, on their page, What is Islamic State?, which is one of their editor's choices uh, of, of articles to read, I'm told that they have a wide variety of small arms and heavy weapons, truck-mounted machine guns, rocket launchers, anti-aircraft guns, portable surface-to-air missiles, systems, tanks, armoured vehicles, Humvees and bomb-proof trucks. And the only indication as to where some of this equipment might have come from, at least on that page anyway, this is what they say, that it, it may have come from Iraqi and Syrian armies. And regarding finances, they say that ISIS is reported to have $2 billion or £1.2 billion in cash and assets, making it the world's wealthiest militant group. And they do mention that initially... Much of the finance came from individuals in Arab Gulf states. But all they say beyond that is that ISIS is now, and I'm going to quote from them, a largely self-financed organization earning millions of dollars a month from oil and gas fields that it controls, as well as from taxation, toll, smuggling, extortion, kidnapping. The offensive in Iraq has also been lucrative, giving it access to cash held in major banks in cities and towns it has seized. So I said all that to create the picture here that it seems to be that, yes, OK, initially ISIS was supported by various Gulf state individuals. But since then, most of its money and equipment has come from pure conquest. So, James, what I want to ask you is, do you think that is a satisfactory picture that's being painted there? Well, I would say it's an incomplete picture. Um, and I think we can fill that picture in with some interesting, seemingly independent reporting coming from unlikely places, including the dailybeast.com, which for some reason or other has been reporting on a lot of these types of stories, including one that I picked up on and, and tweeted recently, U.S. humanitarian aid going to ISIS. And uh, this just talks about the way that... Uh, uh, for example, U.S. warplanes uh, strike at the militants of the so-called Islamic State in both Syria and Iraq. But while they do so, truckloads of U.S. and Western aid has been flowing into territory controlled by the jihadists, assisting them to build their terror-inspiring caliphate. The aid, mainly food and medical equipment, is meant for Syrians displaced from their hometowns and for hungry civilians. It's funded by U.S. Agency for International Development, European donors, and the United Nations. But it is ending up in the hands of the Islamic State militants. So there's an ongoing narrative that the these aid groups are doing their best and they're trying to deliver it, but it keeps getting hijacked or, or things of that nature. And then there's also the uh, admissions that are now coming out that in order to even enter into some of these areas, they have to pay tolls, which are, of course, just basically bribes um, in order to get the, these types of this aid in, which, again, is presumably a type of extortion, which is being used to try to fund some of these activities. Um, and uh, there's actually even the suggestion that there are some ISIS militants who are literally on the payroll of some of these aid organizations. There's a quote from an aid coordinator who says, there's always at least one ISIS person on the payroll. They force people on us. And when a convoy is being prepared, the no negotiations go through them about whether the convoy can proceed. So uh, it's a very bizarre relationship that's happening. And I suppose we could imagine a situation in which all of this is a very real conflict that's taking place. And in order to get emergency supplies and humanitarian aid to people who really do need it, you would have to in some way cooperate with the people who have some degree of military control over the area. 
But I am highly suspicious of reports like these because, of course, again, it comes down to what is the actual capabilities of this group and how many people actually are fighting for it and to what extent are they able to maintain control over this vast stretch of land, this very vast area that they claim to to have control over. To what extent are they able to militarily enforce that against and, and in such a way that they're able to to, for example, uh, control every convoy that's going through the area. I mean, it's it seems beyond the capabilities of of this group. So the stories, for example, of raiding the Mosul Central Bank and getting four hundred and twenty nine million dollars or somewhere thereabouts is, again, I think highly dubious to me. I'm just I I'm not particularly believing a lot of this, mm-hmm. but there are certainly certain resource revenue streams that would be I suppose commandeerable by a, a group like this. Including, of course, access to the uh, um, the oil fields in in northern Iraq, which the Kurds have been up until this point using um, to try to fund their fledgling state, but which uh, a lot of those those sites have been taken over by this group. So we can imagine a way in which this is uh, this is being funded by by these types of activities. But I think there has to be more to it, and I think that the big missing piece of that puzzle is, as you alluded to, the the sponsorship of the the Gulf states, which. Yeah. To whatever extent that the, this idea has been put forward, that the aid and the, the supplies and the training and, and uh, all of this that has been sent to Syria in the last few years has been to fund the so-called, quote unquote, moderate rebels. I think that, again, that's a, a completely ridiculous distinction that never really existed. But anyway, I think it's been known for some time now that even if there was good intentions supposedly behind these these uh, deliveries, mm. uh, that all of these these arms and aid and, and money was ending up in the hands of the most extreme Absolutely. groups anyway. Yeah. So, um, so at a certain point, there's no one, I think, who can claim plausible deniability when it comes to knowingly funding the uh, the most extreme groups, including, of course, the IS, ISI. Well, around that time, I was absolutely amazed, you know, when uh, then Foreign Secretary William Hague was saying things like, oh, yes, I think it's it's possible to keep that kind of assistance out of the hands of al-Nusra. And, and I just hmm. think, how, how on earth are you going to do that? You know, hmm. it just seems ridiculous. Um, do you think uh, there's some case for saying that some of the Libyan assistance actually is ending up in the hands of IS as well? There certainly is. And we have that from, from multiple different uh, perspectives. Uh, for example, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, who people might remember as the person who blew the whistle on the Able Danger program, if they're familiar with that in regards to the 9-11 event. Uh, He has talked about, as well as whistleblowers, uh, James and Joanne Moriarty, who I've had on my program, who were doing business in Libya at that time. And there was a, uh, another person um, who was uh, affiliated with the, the CIA, at any rate, there's been three different sources that have talked about the way that uh, the weapons that were being plundered from the the, the, the fallen Libya government were being shipped through uh, Benghazi, ultimately to Syria, by way of Turkey and Jordan. And so there is absolutely a, a line that can be drawn. And in fact, that is, at least according to this narrative, what the uh, Benghazi events of 2012 were, were all about. It was about the ambassador at the time mm-hmm. in Benghazi basically refusing to go along with it anymore. He was uh, threatening to blow the whistle. And so he was disposed of. And that is the uh, the sort of alternative version of what happened in Benghazi. So absolutely, there there certainly is a, a line that has been drawn by multiple sources between Libyan arms and uh, the Syrian groups. 
Mm-hmm. And I was amazed in that uh, interview you did with James and Joanne Moriarty. They were talking about this Benghazi bank that was set up, they said, with Saudi money. I think it was a billion dollars, something like that, to pay mercenaries. And they talked about quarter of a million mercenaries being employed to help unseat Gaddafi. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what's happened to that quarter of a million set of mercenaries? It's a valid question. And I think that one of the obvious places that that mercenary force would be dispatched if it were to be kept together would, of course, be Syria. So I think the obvious implication is maybe not a quarter of a million, but at least some significant percentage thereof has um, basically shifted fields of operations. And it is an interesting feature of of a lot of these uh, ISIS materials that they're generally appearing in, with covered faces or, or uh, shot in a way that they're not uh, immediately apparent who it is. And I think this relates to the fact yeah. that a lot of them are not indigenous to the area. In fact, a lot of them um, Chechens and uh, admittedly on the record, Chechen generals and others that have taken uh, uh, front and center in the ISIS ranks. So, uh, so again, I mean, this is by no means some sort of indigenous group that's fighting for anything uh, to do with the uh, the well-being of, of the area at all. It, it's uh, at the lower levels, I mean, completely about religious sectarianism, and I think at the higher levels, about the types of intelligence manipulation that's going on in the region generally. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about intelligence manipulation, when I last spoke to uh, Dr. Stanley Monteith in that interview that I was very privileged, as you said before, you know, to have had with him shortly before he died, he said something like, um, these are not his exact words, but uh, if you want to know who created ISIS, then just type ISIS and CIA into your favorite search engine and you'll find out what you need to know. (laughs) Obviously, he was painting with a broad brush there, but I'm guessing he was thinking of this operation center in Jordan with connections linking the CIA, UK, France, Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia. Could you tell us a little bit about that operation center, if you think that's relevant to this ISIS question? Absolutely. Well, I believe it is uh, very relevant. So in uh, late 2011, BoilingFrogsPost.com, obviously the uh, the website of uh, FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds, uh, was the first to report on a secret U.S.-NATO support and training camp to oust um, Assad that was stationed there in uh, in Jordan. So th- this report was sourcing from from a whistleblower source that uh, that Sibel was in touch with that I then went on to interview directly. Uh, in a video that was released in December of 2011. And so that's available on YouTube under the title Breaking U.S. Troops Deploying on Jordan-Syria Border, uh, in which I talked to this whistleblower, a Syrian journalist named Nizar Nayouf, who talked about the base that uh, in Jordan, um, in the north Jordan city of Al-Mafraq. The reports at that time were indicating that uh, a Jordanian military officer who has to remain anonymous had seen hundreds of soldiers uh, speaking languages other than Arabic at the base and were accompanied by American forces. And so this was a a pretty significant development at the time that, of course, was uh, almost completely ignored by the mainstream media. One source that did pick up on it and did report on it was uh, WND, which is not necessarily a reputable um, site for a lot of reasons, but did pick up on this story, and they reported it in February of 2012. It was eventually reported on by um, The Guardian, I believe, in uh, 2013. So by March of 2013, it, it had become mainstream knowledge, and uh, there was a Democracy Now! report that I referenced in my podcast on the subject that I believe related back to, I believe it was a Washington Post report or, or something of that sort that was talking in more detail about this base that included the cooperation of a number of different countries, but was most prominently being coordinated by the CIA. 
And basically, this was a training camp that was being used, again, to train forces to send them into Syria, presumably, again, to topple Assad. And it turns out, wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, that some of the people that they were training became, of course, members of ISIS. (laughs) And the way that was reported is interesting in itself. For example, WND again picked it up under the headline blowback. And then the headline has changed. I can't remember what it originally read. It now reads U.S. trained Islamists who joined ISIS. I believe it read something more along the lines of U.S. trained ISIS fighters in Jordan or something along those lines. They've now sort of rephrased that because they've uh, added an editor's note. Since publication, this story has been corrected to clarify that the fighters trained in Jordan became members of the ISIS after their training. Right. So the implication is that, of course, the U.S. didn't know that these fighters were going to be radical, were radicals or, or that they were going to be radicals because they couldn't predict the future. Yeah. These people became radicals after they were trained. So, uh, again, same, giving, same story again. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, giving yeah. a l- arm's length sort of plausible deniability to that story. But again, it's ridiculous to think that uh, these types of people who are being trained specifically to go in and overthrow a foreign government and uh, and then let loose are not going to be involved in, in groups that uh, that would uh, engage in these types of activities. So I think, again, I mean, it's, it's the question of plausible deniability. And uh, I think the uh, the preponderance of history alone is on the side of uh, this not being some sort of unforeseeable blowback that uh, that w- wouldn't you know it, it just got out of our hands. Uh, I think that, uh, again, there has to be intelligence uh, agency co- complicity in this. Now, this brings me to the question as to who or what are the real driving forces behind ISIS. And I guess we could just settle for the sort of general kind of presentation by the mainstream that uh, this is a, you know, a a spontaneous grouping of ultraviolent jihadists. But as I said before, given the lies that swirl around the war on terror in general and, and war in general, I think we are justified in looking around more broadly for possible vested interests in all this. And in your podcast on ISIS, you drew attention to three factors that we might consider. And I know that you have more in mind as well, but the the ones that you mentioned were the Iran, Iraq, Syria gas pipeline, the greater Israel doctrine and Gladio B. Now, I won't ask you just to give us all that in one go. So could you would you mind starting with the Islamic pipeline? Um, How might that fit into the picture? Well, the the so-called Islamic pipeline, obviously not the formal name for this idea, but basically it was uh, seeking Mm -hmm. to connect uh, Iran's uh, South Pars gas reserves to Syria, ultimately via Iraq. So it was Iran, Iraq, Syria pipeline that a memorandum of understanding for a deal connecting those countries via pipeline was signed in July of 2011. And the idea was that the South Pars gas fields, I believe the largest gas fields on the planet, were going to um, supply the pipeline that would then run all the way up to the city of Homs and then shipped out through a Syrian port directly to Europe, uh, thus bypassing uh, the Russian gas and Gazprom, which one would presume in the current political climate would be uh, something that Europe would be very eager to do. But of course, sourcing from Iran's uh, South Pars gas fields, perhaps there are other political concerns when it comes to this. Uh, Whatever the case may be, in July of 2011, a memorandum of understanding was signed. And this was just at the time that al-Assad's government was starting to, uh, to be undermined. And lo and behold, of course, now we have the Islamic State occupying the very area where or claiming to control the very area where this pipeline was eventually going to end up. 
And so I, I think the disruption of this pipeline, we at least have to look at who would benefit from the disruption of this pipeline. And one of the obvious players that would benefit uh, would be Turkey, which would have been cut out as the middleman for supplying Gulf gas to Europe if this deal had gone ahead. So Turkey obviously has to be seen as one of the players who has an interest in seeing the disruption of the pipeline and thus the creation of or the the fostering of of extremist groups that would uh, make sure that this pipeline could not go ahead and of course it has not gone ahead that should be stressed obviously the deal has been put on hold shall we say uh, is not going ahead at this time um, and no further uh, work has been to my knowledge has proceeded in terms of actually laying down any physical infrastructure for this pipeline since that memorandum of understanding was signed three years ago and Qatar as well that fits into the picture too doesn't it it certainly does i mean there's not only the the sort of gas side of of this and and countries that are concerned about energy uh, in that regards but i mean there's i think a greater sense that there is a regional shift going on right now and there is a sense of uh, power vacuum that's being created right now and, and in fact has existed now for for at least a decade since Iraq was overthrown and has completely upset the balance of power in the region which uh, into that power vacuum a number of different states are, are sort of uh, trying to vie for um, at least increased regional dominance if not total regional dominance really if it wasn't for Iraq Iran would be the, the natural regional the dominant regional power except for the fact that Iran has been completely uh, marginalized through the sanctions and now through the destabilization of one of their key partners in the region, Syria. And interestingly enough, I mean, when you look at the so-called Shia crescent, which extends from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, in that area, I mean, much of that Shia crescent is now controlled and occupied by the Islamic State, of course, a Sunni group. So again, uh, quite an interesting play that that really does seem to undermine any hope of Iran be, being a regional power player, which is where you see countries like Turkey and Qatar even and uh, Saudi Arabia, I think all trying to step into that power vacuum in order to become a greater regional player. So you see a, a relatively small nation like Qatar trying to, in recent years, take more of a lead role in some of these operations in, in terms of uh, coordinating the the Friends of Syria group and things of that nature and uh, the, the Arab League and, and uh, other such organizations trying to step up as some sort of power player or deal maker in the region. And I think that that is another type of incentive that some of these countries would have in seeing the destabilization of Syria. And there's another factor that you say we should at least consider, might be interested, might well be interested in various power vacuums in the area, would be the Greater Israel, the Greater Israel Doctrine, which uh, goes back to the turn of the 20th century, I believe. Do we have reason to believe that that's still operative in some way? Well, let's put it this way. We have no reason to believe that it is not still operative. It's obviously a long-term strategy that has been held by certain elements of the Zionist faction in Israel um, since, as you say, the early part of the 20th century. It's been explicitly stated. And we can uh, trace this back, perhaps most notably through the Oded Yunon plan, which back in 1982 talked quite explicitly about the breakup of Iraq and Syria, amongst other nations, along sectarian lines, actually reading a quote from that document. Uh, Lebanon's total dissolution into five provinces serves as a precedent for the entire Arab world, including Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula, and is already following that track. Uh, so I, I think this is part of a long-term strategy that quite obviously plays into the, the geopolitical interests of Israel in trying to 
basically keep the region around it divided and thus placated, or at least thinking more in in terms of uh, religious sectarian differences than trying to come after Israel. So there is, uh, I think, quite an obvious geopolitical benefit to that. But when we start drawing some of the, the lines that has been suggested in terms of direct Israeli involvement, I think some of them are just completely spurious. And one that I'd like to take a moment to address is this idea that has been floated online that the current leader of al-Baghdadi was actually a an Israeli Mossad agent. And this was apparently revealed by uh, documents that were released by Edward Snowden. And this entire story is just completely 100% fabricated. There were never any such documents by Snowden. Uh, this was just basically a story that was created out of whole cloth. I can't remember where it originally sourced from. I believe I have that link in the show notes for my podcast. But if you follow this story back, it was just completely made up and then rep- repeated and reported and repeated and repeated and reported and repeated and reported ad nauseum in the alternative media, which very quickly grabbed onto this without ever once actually asking to see any of these supposed documents that supposedly revealed this supposed connection. So it is certainly a warning that I think we need from time to time. Once again, just because there's propaganda and and lies coming out of the uh, the mainstream media, it certainly doesn't mean that we can just turn off our, our critical faculties when it comes to examining the alternative media Absolutely. in which these yeah. types of propaganda and lies and, and deceits and, and misinformation can be propagated just as easily. Yeah. You mentioned Gladio B in your podcast and those very fascinating conversations that you had with Sybil Edmonds on that subject. And of course, Operation Gladio, or I guess I'll have to call it Gladio A in this context, I'm sure is very well known to most people listening to this interview. But Gladio B that uh, Sybil Edmonds was explaining about is that later phase of this whole Gladio idea where, as far as I understand it, it shifted from being essentially a Cold War Western Europe operation to being really a global operation with she was talking about particular emphasis in Central Asia and the Caucasus. Now, I know this is a a huge question, but could you briefly give us some sort of idea as to what this Gladio B is and how perhaps it fits with what's going on with ISIS, if there's any link at all there? Absolutely. Well, just a a little bit of background on Gladio. I think it is important to stress, as Sibel stressed and corrected me in our conversation on Gladio B, that Operation Gladio, which by the way, is only called Operation Gladio specifically in the context of the Italian operation, which was the most, I think, famous example of that NATO stay behind operation. But it was called different things in different countries. So there was a different name in Belgium and different name in in every other country was operating, but it's known generally as Operation Gladio. But according to Sibel, one of the central places that that operation was taking place was always Turkey, which is an interesting, I mean, geopolitically, very geostrategically located part of the the grand chessboard um, and, and certainly does provide that window into the Central Asian Caucasus region and uh, and it has its own interesting history and, and uh, part to play in the creation and fostering of radical extremist Muslim groups. But Gladio B, just to I, I, I guess we should just state that the original Gladio operation and we'll just call it Gladio for, for convenience sake, was a, uh, a military operation that was more focused on using ultranationalist and groups of that sort in order to create a strategy of tension in order to demonize political opposition or or achieve 
various political aims. Gladio B was the transition of that use of ultranationalist groups into the use of Islamic extremist groups. So what took place somewhere around the time frame of 1996, which was the uh, time in which a very interesting scandal in Turkey, uh, the Susurluk scandal, occurred in which a terrorist basically was discovered uh, uh, to have died in a car crash along with the, I believe it was the chief of police uh, in, in Turkey and some other high-ranking Turkish officials, which was a very, very interesting scenario and, and exposed some of the, the deep state connections going on in Turkey, which is an entirely fascinating thing in and of itself. But a- around that time, according to Sibel and uh, the, the investigation that she was part of as a translator in the Washington field office of the FBI, that was the time at which this operation started to transition into using specifically Islamic terrorist groups to foment a strategy of tension. And specifically, I mean, uh, obviously, I think the, the scope is more global, but the, specifically um, targeting the, the Central Asia Caucasus region, which is increasingly important in the post-Cold War age as Russia and China and the U.S. and NATO and all of these players are scrambling for different pieces of the chessboard. And I think the Central Asia Caucasus region an extremely important one because, again, it provides a, a sort of geostrategic uh, location. It's it's also right on the doorstep of Russia and China. So we see, for example, the uh, the funding of people like Imam Fatullah Gulen, who uh, was run out of Turkey and ends up in Pennsylvania, of all places, where he was uh, sponsored on his, uh, his visa to enter the United States by CIA operatives like uh, Graham Fuller. Um, again, there's a, I mean, just fascinating history behind all of that. And uh, people can find out more in my eye-opener report that I did for BoilingFrogsPost.com a while back, uh, who is Graham Fuller. So they can find out some of those connections. But again, we see some of these intelligence connections and, and Pentagon connections and others to people like this Imam Fatullah Gulen, who runs a $20 billion empire from Pennsylvania. And uh, it includes hundreds of madra- madrasas that have been opened up in that Central Asia Caucasus region over the years. And and this ties into this fomenting and, and creation of these Islamic extremist groups. So in specifically the um, Iraq and Syria context, I don't have specific information connecting the Gladio NATO operations to the Iraq and Syria uh, region. And I will, in fact, be talking to Sibel Edmonds about this in the near future. So hopefully we can clarify that. But uh, but uh, I, I can't say at this point that I have any direct evidence of connection. But I think it would, at the very least, I mean, I think it's something that we have to keep in mind, be wary of, and, and be aware that this is very much part of the, the modus operandi of this operation to create and foster some of these Islamic militant groups in order to achieve geopolitical aims. And again, I think NATO has a very big stake in what is happening in the Syria-Iraq region for a number of different reasons, uh, including simply the maintenance of military forces in a region that they are increasingly being pushed out of in various ways. And of course, famously, uh, American forces were supposed to leave Afghanistan in 2014, but now have a, uh, a deal whereby they're going to stay on until at least 2024. So uh, we see the the sort of unwillingness to to actually leave the region, which I think gives the lie to the any idea that anything about the invasion of Iraq or, or Afghanistan was about anything other than maintaining a military presence in a very geo, geostrategic region. So tying that back in, I mean, obviously, NATO as the, the overall umbrella group that's running this Operation Gladio B would be very much interested in keeping the tension going in the region between the Sunnis and Shias as an excuse 
for the exact type of thing which we're seeing playing out right now, the uh, the airstrikes that are being led by the, the Gulf states, but obviously with the active cooperation from the U.S. leading from behind, as they say. So it's not something that I can draw a direct line at this point, but it is something that I think we have to be aware of uh, simply to have a greater understanding of the ways that these types of groups are funded and manipulated from behind the scenes by this organization, which is sometimes referred to in the intelligence context, but I think would more accurately be seen as a, as a military operation being spearheaded by uh, primarily NATO and the Pentagon. So if Gladio is operative with respect to ISIS in some kind of way, would, would that imply that this is a quasi-NATO operation to some extent? And I'm saying, I'm putting the word quasi in there because, I mean, Gladio A, as I'm calling it that, was unknown to the vast majority of those in authority in NATO countries back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So would that mean that Gladio B, if it's operative, would also be something that was secret with respect to most people in authority today? So they wouldn't really know what was going on at that level. Well, we would have to assume that that would be the case simply because, as you say, uh, when it was exposed, finally, the, the the Operation Gladio and what had gone on for decades when it was finally exposed by the Italian prime minister in 1990, there had been sort of traces of it that had leaked earlier than that. But it was it was exposed, I suppose, once and for all in 1990 by the Italian prime minister. But at that time, it became apparent to even some of the, the prime ministers of some of these countries that they had not been informed of these operations that had been going on. So so again, this is the type of shadow government infrastructure, I suppose you can say, that operates behind the scenes that really transcends any particular government, which can be voted in or out, but uh, is not necessarily um, beholden to any of them. Not necessarily even those governments are not even aware of the existence of these operations. So I think we would have to presume that would be the case going forward in future intelligence operations as we can, I think, presume with the, the case of Gladio B that there would be governments that would have no idea that the, these operations were going on. And uh, it's it's about compartmentalization and it's about black budgets and all of the infrastructure for the secrecy, the, the intelligence agencies that were set up in the wake of the Second World War that enabled this type of operation to proceed without necessarily the explicit approval or even awareness of the so-called highest offices in the land. Mm. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about, and I said to you before the interview that I didn't really want to talk about it, but I feel that we must talk about it, um, is really to ask you your view of these beheading videos that have been coming out. And I'm going to admit straight away that it's not something that I've looked into very much. But I do find myself asking when I see, you know, something on the front of a newspaper, I'm thinking, well, qui bono? That's the question that comes to mind most of the time. And I you know, quite apart from all the video fakery and that kind of thing, I've heard a number of explanations for these beheadings, like they're done to inspire people to join ISIS, they're done to outrage the US, the UK, France, etc., so as to draw the West into war, and that would be done in order to then increase the hatred for the West, or, or indeed to bleed the West dry. I think when I hear those things, I think, okay, maybe, but... Might we not also say something like, well, you know, goading the West into war against you is actually the least likely strategy that you would push for? I mean, why not just get on with the business of conquering Iraq, Syria without interruption and just get much stronger? And I also think, you know, by targeting Western journalists who they're, to, they're there to do their job and targeting aid workers who, you know, everybody would say they're there to do good, that that is exactly what you would do. If you were arranging some kind of false flag to drum up support for Western military action against ISIS. Now, as I said to you before the interview, that may sound too cynical, but I can't help but think slightly along those lines when I see these kinds of reports. What do you think of that? 
Well, I agree with your analysis. I mean, if we start at the end result of this, it certainly is that the publics uh, generally of, of the Western world see this paraded across the headlines and, and on the news and are immediately incensed and outraged and motivated to do something. So the end result is ultimately what we have right now, the, the airstrikes that are proceeding, airstrikes that would have been unthinkable before ISIS was proclaimed as the uh, the great Satan of of the Western world and uh, and the, the the boogeyman that that needs to be attacked right away and and of course this has been going on for some time that airstrikes of some sort or or military operations have been proposed in Syria for the last couple of years there was uh, just last year there was the the chemical weapons attack in Ghouta that was uh, attempted to be blamed on the Assad government that yeah. was supposedly going to be the motivation for some sort of uh, airstrike campaign in Syria that failed to come to fruition. But now we have these beheading videos. And now, of course, all of the opposition that existed to that Syrian strike last year, which uh, was quite sizable, quite notable in uh, mm-hmm. London, in New York, and other places where vast demonstrations yeah. were held against the idea, save save Syria or whatever banner they were waving at the time, that has completely disappeared. And now the average, I think the average person who is consuming this, uh, these media headlines uncritically is is generally supportive of it because we have to do something. So again, just working from the end result backwards, it certainly does work out for the idea of a propaganda campaign designed to motivate the public into some sort of military action. Now, what specific threads of evidence do we have for that? Um, that can be much less, uh, much shakier ground. Sure, but sure. We, I mean, there are, there are uh, just to be clear, there are a lot of very suspicious things about these videos. And I, I, I think we have to take that into account. And even mainstream reports of various people um, uh, coming out in, in public and saying that these videos seem staged in some way. So mm-hmm. again, uh, whether they're being staged or whether they're not, whether they're real or whether they're not, and whether they serve some sort of purpose in terms of the uh, an authentic Islamic group really trying to, to provoke and goad the Western world into some sort of action against it, uh, the end result is that it does allow a military operation to take place, which the Western governments have been trying to convince their their own populations to, to support for some time now. Indeed. And what do you think also of combining that with what certainly what I consider to be not really very plausible alternative explanations that it's trying to create hatred of the West? I mean, I thought it was enough hatred of the West already. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I see a certain logic to that, depending on what the end goal of a group is. So, I mean, for example, in the old Al-Qaeda narrative, the idea was that bin Laden wanted to provoke the U.S. into action in order to to basically start to engage with and deplete the resources of and get the great Satan involved in some sort of quagmire. And I, I guess there is some way in which you could say that that could be a strategy that a group that is obviously not a state actor and doesn't have the resources or ability to engage something like the United States militarily. Well, what do you do? Well, you draw them into, you know, a, a different country like Afghanistan or Iraq and you attack them there through terror operations and try to, you know, deplete the will and deplete the resources. I mean, there is there is some logic, I suppose, to that. I, I don't necessarily believe it is a, a convincing explanation for the scale of what we see going on. But again, it depends on the aims of the, the groups. And, and to be clear, again, I mean, there are people who are flying the Islamic State flag who really do 
believe in what they're doing. And and not everyone is some sort of intelligence construct here. There really are people who are motivated by yes, real yes. religious hatreds and motivations here. Sure. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. That can create a, a very false sort of impression to think of it all in conspiratorial terms all the time. Absolutely. At yeah. any rate, I should, I, should I, I, I think, address, I mean, the, the underlying premise of your statement, which is that, for example, when we look at it in the context of Syria and Assad, you know, uh, uh, supposedly launching chemical attacks on his own population f- for no purpose whatsoever. I mean, in a, in, a, in a military campaign that from a military perspective, the Syrian government was clearly winning at that point. Mm. Why on earth would they launch these chemical weapons attacks, which would have no end result other than provoking the West into some sort of military action against it, it would be suicidal and ridiculous. Mm. But from the perspective of a non-state actor, I think you could understand that there's some way that the non-state actor, if it did have some sort of global jihadi conquest idea, would want to draw those groups into the area so that they could engage them directly. And it's not like Islamic State is necessarily worried about losing any particular infrastructure, because again, this is all sort of just recently conquered infrastructure. So again, I, I, I see that there could be some way in which we could imagine there's some sort of logic to this, but I, I'm not particularly convinced by it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the whole thing is very, very strange, isn't it? It's all very, extremely weird, and I, I find it quite difficult to get any clear picture of what's really going on with this. And uh, yeah, It's a very bewildering tale. <laughs> there are so many different threads to this story, so... Yeah. I guess the only thing that we can really say, with a fair degree of confidence anyways, you know, based on previous experiences of nothing else, is that whatever is going on, we are certainly not getting the whole truth about any of it. So, with that having been said, is there anything that you would like to end with that might help to gather these strands together in some way? I mean, not to give answers, but at least to sort of point the way forward for us in thinking about these things as we go forward. Well, then then let's end up where we started from, which is the idea of the open source investigation that, w- that we've been conducting at the Corbett Report, which is an idea that I really want to try to extend and further in the coming months and years, because I really think that this is an important tipping point or an important point at any rate in the development of, of the alternative media generally, where I think there has to be some sort of ability to process this information in a way that is beyond simply the sort of scattershot collection of a few links and then putting that together as some sort of analysis. I mean, I think we need we need something more encompassing happening. And that's what I'm attempting to foster in my own section of the internet. But obviously, that's just one small example. But I, I think what we are attempting to do on the, on the big scheme of things is to try to replace and completely supplant the, the system that is developed of the newswire services and, and these giant newspapers of days past, the New York Times or whatever it may be, the newspapers of records that had the ability to employ all of these reporters all around the world and to basically amass a great degree of intelligence uh, about what's happening in various different places. We're attempting to supplant that paradigm, but I think there needs to be a way to draw information from various different sources and to put it into not necessarily a final form, because again, this is the internet. So publication does not mean we have to put something in print and, you know, commit to it and uh, not be able to revise it. I mean, it's, it's clearly fluid and should be uh, we should see it in that manner. But at any rate, we should be able to form some sort of coherent narrative from the, the various sources. So that's something that I'm I'm very excited about when it comes to uh, what's happening right now at the Corporate Report specifically, where we have 
listeners literally all around the world in, in dozens of different countries, um, speaking all sorts of different languages, collecting information and news reports from different sources in different countries with different in different languages and trying to collect and coalesce and process that information. And I'm working out how best to do that. But ultimately, it's not going to be up to me. It's going to be up to the community at large. So if people want to join me in that quest, of course, they can come to CorbettReport.com and contribute to that. And obviously, uh, members of the Corbett Report can sign into the website and start joining in that conversation at articles like uh, Who is ISIS and Open Source Investigation, where we have this conversation going on, um, currently consisting of 76 comments from people, again, all around the world and dozens and dozens of different links to different sources. And uh, and I think that's the model that I want to proceed with. And I think it offers the possibility that we'll be able to supplant the, the sort of news collection and delivery services of old in a more thoroughgoing manner than what we have now, where it seems to be a lot of kind of lone wolf operations that are collecting some interesting information, but not necessarily bringing it together and not not necessarily engaging in the types of editorial discourse that I think needs to go on. Because again, you can have lots of different sources of information, but these sources contradict and they, they overlap at times and, and sometimes they're, they're mutually exclusive and sometimes they're not. And there needs to be some sort of process for vetting this information and deciding you know, what's, what's the best way forward. And again, I, that's not going to be up to me or any other individual. It's going to be up to people coming together and, and tr- really engaging in discourse about it. So that's a, that's a very long-winded no. answer, but I think it, <laughs> it is important that we, as an alternative media movement, if that's no. if that is what we are, I think it's time we start thinking about this before, oh, while we have this this moment of opportunity with the uh, the incredible technology that we have right now to communicate instantaneously worldwide. I think we need to start thinking about how we will effectively um, supplant the, mm. the the old information paradigm, and uh, I think we can do better than what what we've done up to this point, and uh, that's what I'm trying to create. Yeah. Well, it's a great vision you have there for all of us really to work on. And uh, as I said before, fascinating to speak with you, James. I'm so glad that you came on again. Um, I think that we've ended up with perhaps more questions floating around than than answers, but uh, that's that's (laughs) fine, isn't it? That's really what you've just been saying, that uh, all of these questions should be there for us to consider, and we all need to be involved in this. You have nevertheless given us a a wealth of information to consider, and uh, to keep in mind as we continue to try to understand what's going on in this uh, increasingly mad, increasingly disturbing world. So once again, thank you very much indeed for coming on and for sparing some of your valuable time late at night to be with us, James. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it, Julian. It's great to speak to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.